Good morning. You know, as cute as that, that is, there's something so powerful. It, we're told scripture to be ruled by children. This is judgment. What we see here is the mysteries of God revealed through the mouths of babes. They started by singing out of uh, Isaiah 9, saying, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Government will be on his shoulders. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And years ago in small group, we were in Peter, first Peter, and he says, these guys who wrote this, they didn't even know what they were saying. It wasn't given to them. And you read that, and you think, what did they not know? And it was rightly answered that he would be God himself. And now he's given it to children to know and in, in fact make all those connections and say at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, every tongue confess that he, the baby, is Lord. It's a tremendous thing, lest it become commonplace to us. See, I'm going to turn to Galatians 4 this week and next to do a you know, Christmas sermon. It's called this God's plan. Indeed, that plan they just sang about, right? That was not given to these who wrote about it, but it was given to this generation. That's being written to here by Paul in Galatians 4. And he's in verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us to rejoice in you. To rejoice in a baby born under the law to become the man, the only man who would ever keep the law. I ascribe it to our account. The man who would mount that cross, the man who would become a merciful and faithful high priest. To the God-man that is king, to you, our God. Lord, may it not be lost on us. May it indeed not become commonplace. May it not become um, familiar. But may we wonder at your work. Wonder at you that you, God himself, would condescend to come down and become one of us. To save this. To save the wretch. So may it turn our hearts to you. May it grant us a new desire to serve you and to wonder at you and to marvel at your name and to carry it out. And this season, may we not just see a sweet little baby in a manger, but the fulcrum of history on whose shoulders all things sit, through whom and for whom all things are created, and for whom and through whom all things subsist. Lord, may it be new to us every day. So may we go out and glorify you, the baby, the man, the God, our King. May we take it every corner of the globe, Everywhere you would have your people, may you be magnified, may you be glorified, may you be honored and praised for it all belongs to you, Lord. We lift up this time, we lift up CF to you, may you grant him right interpretation, may you grant us new understanding and new gleaning from your word and new application for our hearts that we might go out and serve you well in the works you prepared. We love you, we thank you for this time, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Thank you, Garrett. Good morning, everybody. I'd like to welcome you here. If you go to that passage that uh, Garrett read, that's going to be our text for today. You're visiting with us. Glad to have you here. We're going to take a look this morning at God's plan and what God had in store. Uh, kind of the backdrop to Christmas uh, that we celebrate and uh, when he sent his son into the world. So we're going to look at this passage and uh, look at how God brought the, uh, everything together, perfect timing, at the right time, at the right place, how everything had to come together for it to happen the way it did. And then the results of it, we're experiencing even to this day. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll take a look. Father, we come before your throne thanking you, Lord, for all that you've granted us, thanking you, Lord, for the many blessings of this life. We thank you, Lord, for life itself and for what it means to us and to those around us. And we pray, Father, that we would hear your word intently, that, Father, our hearts and minds would be open to it, that you would direct me in my instruction, and, Lord, that it be accurate and true, and that you would take it utilize it in our life for your glory. And we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to learn. And we pray and ask for your blessings on this time in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, you look at that passage in Galatians 4.4. This is a, one of the prison epistles. We just finished the book of Colossians. And the book of Galatians was written at the same time during Paul's imprisonment. He begins this passage. He says, but when the fullness of time had come. Beginning with the word but, very clearly as a contrast. And a contrast, in order to understand what he's saying, you have to go back and look what he said prior to that. So we look at the first three verses, and he says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so we... When we were children, we're in bondage under the elements of the world. He talks about our condition prior to coming to faith in Christ. That is a contrast with what he's going to say beginning in verse 4. Because God's law had been established. And what God's law did, we, a lot of people refer to it as the Ten Commandments, but his law encompassed 613 that were simply summarized in the Ten and the law is given to reflect the character and nature of God. This is what God is like. This is what God demands. God's standards, as he revealed them in Scripture, were so high and so, from a human perspective, so demanding that it renders every person totally unable or unable to accomplish any of it. It's the purpose of the law is not to give you a standard to live by. The purpose of the law is to show you the holiness of God and what his standard is. It's not possible for man to live up to that. He is unable to do so. And in keeping God's commandments, it's not that we can keep some and others are more difficult. It's that if we violate one, we're guilty of all of them. It's an all or none proposition that is set before us. If you were to look in James chapter 2, verse 10, 
James says, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. So God's standard is 100 percent because anything less than 100 percent righteousness is not pure holiness. And pure holiness comes short of where God's standard is. So by God's standard, we understand that we're, we're under bondage. We're, we're condemned before God. And it's not that the law is bad because the law is good. The law is a reflection of who God is. And God is so high and past where we are as humans because of our sinfulness that when we look at the law and we look at it clearly from that perspective of 100% all the time, we're left with a conclusion that what can we do to be saved? Well, what must we do to be saved? That's the purpose of it, is to drive us to our knees. And that's what the but stands for in this passage. Even though we were condemned under God's law, that God's standard of holiness was so high we couldn't even come near it, God has a plan for man. That's the grace of God. God reaches down to man and says, but... When the fullness of time had come. That's a very interesting statement right there because the word uh, fullness there is the word plurama and it means to make full or to fill up. To have the full measure or an abundance of completion. It speaks to the totality of the period of time that this took place. That there was a proper completion. Because, see, God had this plan that extended back before man was even created. You can read it in the book of Romans. Uh, uh, you read in Romans chapter 13. And in chapter 13, it tells us that, uh, well, I can't even read my own notes, man. That's a, that's a heck of a note, isn't it? But uh, it speaks of the fact that Christ is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, there's another statement that, that closely parallels that. 1 Peter 1 and 19, 1 Peter 1 and 19, it says, But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. God's plan extended before he even created mankind. His plan existed. So when you look at the passage in Galatians, it says, but, but when the fullness of time had come, when the, when, the, when the stage was set, and what was that stage? Well, when Christ was born, he was born during the, the rule of Rome, during the Roman Empire. And during the Roman Empire, there were a lot of things that were taking place in the world as it existed at that time. The world was looking for a leader, for one thing. The spiritual state of the people had digressed to such a state that most religions at that time were dead. The philosophies were found to be empty. 
and various mysterious, uh, mysterious religions were popping up on the scene. So you could say, spiritually speaking, the world was bankrupt spiritually, it was without hope, it was without anything of meaning or purpose. But during this time was known as a time called uh, Pax Romana. And Pax Romana meant the peace of Rome. It was the most prosperous time in the history of the Roman Empire. It existed from 27 B.C. until 180 A.D. It covered the reign from Augustus all the way to Aurelius. And during that time, Rome had a population estimated at about 70 million people. And the empire expanded because what the Romans were concerned with was commerce. And the Romans began expanding eastward. And as they expanded eastward, they were searching for silk and gems and spices. They extended trade all through the Mediterranean, even up into Asia, down into India. And they'd covered at that time what was known as the known world. Prior to the Romans, there was the Greek Empire. And the Greeks were concerned primarily with language, cities, and culture. And as Alexander the Great extended his empire, it covered over 2.1 million square miles. And after the Greeks were defeated, the Romans came to power. And when the Romans came to power to expand their trade, they began building roads all over Europe and Asia. They built 29 major highways, connecting together 113 different provinces. Their actual constructed roads, not, not like dirt roads or something, but actually constructed roads that had stone in them, covered a distance of 250,000 miles. In addition to that, they had 50,000 miles of roads that were paved solid with rock. So you could travel down these roads and they could complete their commerce. The Romans were worried about money. The Greeks were worried about culture. And Alexander changed the language and came up with a common language known as Koine Greek. And every province in the Greek empire spoke Koine Greek. When the Romans took over, they, they kept that language. And so you had two critical things that took place prior to the coming of the Savior. One was a common language that covered the known world and roads that would connect the known world together. It was at that time that God sent forth his son. And when the disciples were sent out, the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. And the disciples were able to travel quickly along the roads that the Romans had built. See, what God had done is he took these pagan kings and rulers and he let them do what they wanted to do and pursue the things they wanted to pursue, not knowing that they were paving the way for the Savior that God was going to send into the world. Christianity had, had expanded so far during the early days of the disciples. That I'm going to read you a statement from Acts 17. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis 
and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas, but the Jews who were not persuaded becoming envious took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathered a mob set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. The disciples at that time had so spread the gospel that the, that the rulers, the pagan rulers of that day said, these people have turned the world upside down. In a few short years, they came on the scene utilizing what was prepared by pagan kings to turn the world upside down for God. It was all part of God's plan. It was all a part of God's purposes. And when Christ was sent into the world, he came into the world at the perfect time. You think about all the years that span prior to the coming of Christ. And you had the four major empires that had existed, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. The way was prepared and the Savior was sent into the world. It says in our text, it says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That's a very significant statement right there. Because if you look at it closely, you see that it is not man seeking a savior. It is God sending forth one. God is always the one seeking man. Man in and of himself does not seek holiness. Scriptures is very clear on that. You can look at virtually anywhere, but very clear place to look is in the Gospel of John. If you look over in the Gospel of John in the third chapter, you will see a statement there that will dash the thoughts of man to pieces. Our familiar verse in John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light, the revelation of God, has come into the world. And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Scripture is very clear. Man runs from light. 
man runs from the revelation of God. So it took God, according to Galatians 4, it took God to send forth his son. It's God pursuing man. Famous book by a British writer by the name of Francis Thompson. Title of the book is called The Hound of Heaven. And in that book, it speaks of how God pursues mankind. I think of my own life and God's pursuit of me throughout my life. Many times in my life, I was hit straightforward with presentations of the gospel and I, that I clearly remember. And I couldn't escape it. Did I want the gospel? No. First time I got the gospel was from my father at about the age of six. And I remember how terrifying it was to hear it and how I prayed with my dad. So well, maybe if I pray, he won't say this to me again. And I prayed a little prayer with him. And then I went on with my life. And I remember as a young teenager, uh, probably around 12 or 13, some hippies were coming through the area during the big Jesus movement back in the late 60s. And they, they were wearing robes and beads and they had Bibles and they hemmed me up on a sidewalk and shared the gospel with me. And I pursued, I fled from that. I had a Sunday school teacher that tried it. I got in the Marine Corps, the lieutenant in the room next to me aboard the ship was a believer from Tennessee. And he'd read his Bible every night. And I said, why are you reading that thing over and over again? I said, I've read through it a couple times, but I said, after that, I'm done with it. He's, I said, you read it every day. You don't have a good memory. What's your problem? And he said, no. He said, this is just, I, I, mean, I just didn't know. I didn't have a clue. And he said, no, I have a relationship with God and I want to understand it further. And he shared the gospel with me. And I told him my favorite line. Yeah, I got, I got saved when I was a kid. It wasn't until I was 26 working in a prison when I was confronted with it again. And again and again and again, because the hound of heaven was on me. God was pursuing me. God sent forth his son and sent forth his son for us. Note what it says. It's, it's several critical words here. It says he sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Three significant things about the person of Christ. Number one, he sent forth his son. That speaks to his deity. The fact that the son comes forth from the father. That is deity. He's proceeding forth from God. So he is God himself. The second thing is that he sends forth his son born of a woman. The second thing is that he has humanity. He is fully man. Theologians refer to it as the hypostatic union. Two separate distinct natures united in one. He's fully God in undiminished deity and he's fully man without sin. He is the God-man, or if you will, the only begotten, the one and unique one that existed. So he's fully God, he's fully man in one being. And then it says, born under the law. So Jesus came into the world as a Jew. He was born under the law. So he's fully man, he's fully God, an undiminished deity. And one person born under the law, therefore he kept the law. The law was over him and Christ himself 
made this statement, if you want to turn in your book to, to Matthew, and when you look into the, the book of Matthew, if you look in chapter 5, verse 17, he says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled everything in the law. He kept the law perfectly. He came, when God sent forth His Son in the world, He sent forth His Son as a substitute for you and me. Christ came to do what we could not do in that He lived as a Jewish male under the law, kept the law perfect in every aspect of it. Therefore, He was able with His humanity to represent you and me and to go to the cross and die on our behalf to die as our substitute as one that perfectly kept the law. And therefore, He was sacrificed for us. His blood was shed on our behalf. Because see, a sacrifice in order to be complete has to equal the one that it's being sacrificed for. And all the lambs and goats and birds and everything that was slain prior to Christ were less than a man. But that day when he was walking down the river Jordan, after his baptism... And John the Baptist was standing out there preaching to the crowds. He saw Jesus coming and he pointed and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. God sent forth his own Lamb. Because every Lamb prior to that could not take away sin, but could merely cover sin so that man could have a functioning relationship with God. But when Jesus came, he bore the sin, paid the debt in full when he rose from the grave, signified that payment was made on our behalf. Therefore, our sin is placed on him. And because he fulfilled the law and kept the law perfect, his righteousness is given to us. So when we stand before God, we stand not as people that were faithful. We stand as people that are forgiven and imputed with perfect holiness. That's what enables you and me to come before God. So when this text says, in the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He gives you the whole story right there. The God man came, fulfilled the law on our behalf. Why did he do that? Verse five. Verse five says he came to redeem those who were under the law. The word to redeem or redeem, if you will, is the word agorazo, compound word ek meaning out, agorazo meaning marketplace. It means to buy out of the market. It's a common term if you went shopping, you would give the merchant money for something in the market. And when you gave that money for that item in the market, the item became yours. You bought it out of that market. Well, what market did Jesus buy us out of? He bought us out of the slave market of sin. Right. See, we're in bondage. We're in bondage. This term was used in purchasing slaves. They would buy them out and they became the property of that individual. 
You and I were slaves under sin and Jesus Christ bought us. How did he buy us? He, he bought us or redeemed us with his own blood. See, it was his blood that paid the price for us. And so scripture is very clear and it says that he redeemed those who were under the law. And then here's the purpose clause that we might receive the adoption as sons. The word received, apolambano. Another one of those compound words means from and to receive, to receive back, to receive from. That is the general idea there. So when the word, when in that passage says to receive the adoption, it's to receive back. Now, what does this adoption mean? You don't come into the family of God by adoption. You come into the family of God because you're bought, you're purchased, and you're birthed into that family. In order to be a part of the family of God, you must be born again. You must be born into God's family. Adoption speaks of our rights and privileges. When we're born into the family of God, we are adopted by God. And when we are adopted by God, we receive all the rights and privileges of a son. That's what the word means. Under Roman law, when a child was adopted, four critical things took place. Number one, any debts that that child had were canceled. Number two, all charges that were against that child were dropped. Meaning he couldn't be charged with anything that had occurred during his life. Number three, the father of that child could not put him to death. In the Roman Empire, a father could have any child put to death at any time he wanted to, but an adopted child, he couldn't. He couldn't have that child put to death. And uh, number four, that child could never be disinherited by the father. Now, folks, when the Bible says we're adopted into God's family, you know what that means? We're birthed into his family and all of our debts are canceled. All charges against us are dropped. We cannot be killed by the Father, and we can never be disinherited by the Father. We have all the rights and privileges of adoption. Paul uses that word in that culture because they fully understood what it meant. It means that I come into the family of God, and in spite of my past, I get all the rights and privileges as a son. I'm put in a place of honor, a place of distinction, all because God's plan is carried out perfectly. This is the Christmas story right here, that God sends forth his son to those who don't deserve it. He sends forth his son at the perfect time in human history. When the stage is set for everything to take place and a world that is spiritually dead and decaying, God sends forth his son and he brings hope to the known world that existed at that time. And that hope and that reality is here today. But you know, there's something else about this story, if you'll notice, and that's this, that God's timing, God, time is meaningless to God. You, you look at 
at your Bible prior to the coming of Christ that you go all the way back to Adam and Eve and follow it all the way through. Look at how much time it took place for God's perfect plan to come forth into the world. It's a beautiful story about how God is not in a hurry to do anything. And yet we often sit around and, and, and we think about our own personal life and why does God take so long to do this or that? God has his own timeline. See, when he came to Christ, he had to get a language in place. He had to get roads in place before the Savior came. Why does God have you waiting? You think about things in your life. How long, God, is this going to go on? In the fullness of time, you'll know. People in that day and time looked for that Savior. Those that understood the Scripture were looking. They knew the time was coming near that this Savior would come into the world. But when that Savior came in the world, few knew Him. The religious crowd didn't. The political crowd didn't. It was a bunch of shepherds that it was revealed to. God came to those shepherds on a hillside, told them, He said, Hey, there's a Savior born in the city of Bethlehem. You understand what shepherds were? They were the lowest ones in society. They were not the rich and famous, they were not the popular. They didn't even sleep in the city, they slept out with their animals. And it was to those people that God came to. Woke them up on the side of that mountain as they were laying there. They went into the city and they see the Savior born in a manger in the city of Bethlehem. That's how God's fullness of time works, folks. You think God's forgotten about you? If you're a believer, understand this. You have been birthed into his family and you have been adopted with full rights and privileges of a son. God hadn't forgotten about you. It's just God's timeline often is different than ours. But we can, we can rest on this, that God's timeline is sure. And that is that God is going to bring about his plan. Because just like he did with Jesus in the fullness of time, he came. The greatest gift that you could ever have is the Savior that God gave. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace and love toward us for all your many blessings. And we're thankful, Father, for the Savior that you sent us. Help us this holiday season to reflect upon your goodness toward us, your blessings toward us. That in spite of who we are, people that are under the law, that are under the curse, that are under sin, you sent forth a Savior to redeem, to buy back to yourself. And then when you do that, you give us full rights and privileges, none of which we, we deserve. All by grace and by the good pleasure of your will. For that, we are to live in gratitude daily. Help us to do so and help us to reflect upon that as we live our life today. In Christ's name we pray, Lord. Amen.